Hello, everybody, and welcome to From Plum Creek with Love, a Little House on the Prairie podcast. I'm your host, John Hernandez, and welcome to Season 4's Season Finale, Part 2. I have to admit that watching this episode and, you know, preparing my notes, script, whatever, for this, this went by a lot quicker than Part 1. And I have to confess... In recording this podcast episode, I was hitting the Command-S combination more frequently. And as you can tell, as you hit play on this episode, it is, yes, a longer running episode. Because, of course, it is our season finale. So, we'll just stop with the rambling and just get right into the recap. And with that being said, let's get started on today's recap. Today's episode is entitled, I'll Be Waving As You Drive Away, Part 2, and debuted on March 13th, 1978. It was written by Carol and Michael Rochella and directed by William F. Claxton. We begin with the recap. Mary goes blind. That's all you really need to know. P.S. No mention of The Grange, or Seth Barton. We begin with an open covered wagon approaching what looks like a renovated farmhouse. This is the Burton School for the Blind. Mary is arriving along with Charles, who then tells his Lyft, wagon, Uber ride that he has a train to catch at four, so stick around in the meantime. Apparently they didn't have meters back in the day. Mary and Charles are inside when to the side a door opens and a man we've never met before invites Charles into his office to fill out just a little more paperwork. Mary is told to please continue waiting out in the lobby. And while waiting there, a gentleman calls out for a Miss Mary Ingalls. Mary raises her hand and says that would be me. And this is when we are introduced to Adam Kendall, her new teacher, and it's a good thing she is blind because she would be really distracted. Adam Kendall is not an upgrade from John Jr. He's just the next generation. And Mary doesn't know it yet. Adam has come here to escort Mary to her room. As Mary picks up her luggage and follows Adam, we cut to inside the office. Charles confesses the last few weeks have been really challenging, and he hopes that he's making the right decision for Mary. This no-name man who has an office all of his own informs Charles that some families have treated family members with blindness as though it was a mental illness and hid them away from public sight instead of just being unable to see. In fact, this no-name man who has an office informs us that these schools used to be known as asylums. This man continues to tell Charles what he needs is for Charles to have the courage to let Mary go. She's only going to learn from doing, well, under professional guidance, of course. He continues to tell Charles, although the families have good intentions, pampering usually results in the individual never gaining a sense of independence, freedom. As Charles concludes signing those papers, 
He is then informed that Mary is to be isolated for the first three months. No contact with her family whatsoever. The first issue for her to overcome is self-pity, and family doesn't help. Charles is informed he'll receive periodical updates until Mary is able to send a letter herself. No-name man who seems to be running this place then tells Charles that he does expect him to leave sooner rather than later. There's no reason for a long goodbye when it's just going to hurt the both of you. A little stunned, but ready to send his daughter to school, Charles complies. He's taken up to Mary's room to say goodbye, and inside Mary's room, Adam makes a quick exit to give Charles and Mary some alone time. And to Mary's surprise, Charles is saying goodbye. He's got a chance to catch an earlier train, so he's going to head back into town and head home to Walnut Grove. Mary's completely disappointed, voices her frustration how she thought they had the entire afternoon. Charles gets straight to the point, tells Mary he's checked out the school, he thinks it's really good, it's going to be a great experience her for getting a new start on life. He gives her a hug and then leaves the room. Mary yells out, Papa, don't leave me here. Charles, I love you. And he's gone. Out of the room, down the hall, down the stairs, without even a goodbye from Adam or the nameless man who has an office who happens to run the school. With Charles gone, nameless man approaches Adam and tells him, let school begin. Adam knocks on Mary's door, enters, and tells Mary it's time to unpack and get herself situated. If she wants to rest, that's okay. And the first words out of Mary's mouth are, unpack? I can't. Standing in that room, Adam says, well, you're going to have to learn how to here. And here is your first lesson. And supper is at six. He then tells Mary that he'll see her later, and I tell Mary, good luck. And for the next scene, I am 100% not going to say anything in regards to the long takes. Here, they serve a purpose. And for the second time, Mary has a bedroom all to herself, albeit this one is less luxurious, but she has a room all her own. There's a bed, there's two chairs, there's a desk, there's even a bureau with a mirror, which Mary does happen to find, and as she touches the mirror's surface, she starts to cry. Later on, it must be six, Adam Kendall is heading up to Mary's room with a tray, and Adam, he looks amazing, knocks and enters Mary's room. Entering the room, he begins with a story about how some of his students who were busy making dinner accidentally mixed up their cinnamon and cayenne pepper, and as a result, they now have the hottest apple pies. And I have to confess, that does sound a little tasty. Adam sets the tray down on the desk, then instructs Mary to get off the bed and come over and have some food. Having a seat, Adam informs Mary it is now time for her next lesson. Mary tells Adam she's not into having company as she eats. I don't like people looking at me. She says this in a blind school. She is such a snob. However, what Adam comes to reveal is that 
Mary eats with her fingers. And he tells her, everyone does at first until they learn. Mary, acting like a child, I'm not here to learn about table manners. Adam corrects her. Actually, yes, you are. Being blind doesn't mean you need to eat like an animal. Mary finds a napkin, puts it in her lap. Mary's told her plate, going clockwise, is at two potatoes, five meat, and at ten o'clock are the veggies. And your fork is on the left. Mary sits there and in defiance uses her fingers to pick up the food. Adam yells at her. Mary yells back, If you don't like watching a blind person eat, then just get out. He then delivers some TLA. Tough-loving Adam. Self-pity is not going to help you. When are you going to get on with living? Being blind makes you just as good as anyone else. You are not special. You are not a beautiful and unique snowflake. You are the same decomposing organic matter as everyone else. This is your life. Mary then tosses her plate of food across the room. We're informed the roast beef was rather tasty. Adam continues, there are towels in the closet and you best get to cleaning up. This is your room, after all, as long as you're here. He gets up and leaves, and as he is exiting, it should be noted, Adam is feeling for the door. So Mary has no idea. Her teacher is also blind. It's the next day, or so. Adam and Mary are working, or at least trying. Mary's busy being a brat, and told to comply to Adam's voice. Come find me in the room. As Mary gets up and starts to move, she is told not to shuffle. Mary stops and then starts to cabbage patch. Just kidding. Adam tells her, you're blind. Walk with confidence. Mary, being the top student that she is, and also being inspired by her mother, who already knows how to stomp to the death out on the prairie, makes her way across the room to Adam. Congratulating her for her work, Adam states, See, it's not so hard. Mary, no, I don't see, and that's the point. What's the point of walking across a room when there's nothing to see when you get there? Adam takes a nice deep breath. I care, because it's my job to teach you. And if I don't, then I don't get paid. So I'm going to give you five minutes to take a break and we will meet back for lunch where there will be no throwing food. Adam leaves the room and out in the hallway bumps into the no-name man who happens to run the school, possibly, and calls him Sir. Adam gives an update on Mary before leaving and we get a montage of Mary doing things for herself, or at least learning how to make the bed without wrinkles, how to write in a straight line with the ruler, eating without throwing things, and lastly, eating around people. Until finally, Adam escorts Mary into a classroom and tells her, today, Mary starts to learn how to read. And I just have to say good, because she was terrible at it before. Although she can deliver a good punch or a good slap. 
We get more evidence in this scene Adam is indeed blind as he feels for a seat for him and Mary. Having a seat, this is when Mary is introduced to Luis Braille and his contribution to the blind community. A book is placed down in front of her and Adam tells her to touch the pages. Mary inquires, what's that? And then Adam reads Mary, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. Mary is then introduced to her Braille primary book and starts learning her A, B, C, and D in her new method of seeing. Adam quizzes her on two of the letters, which she gets right. He then inquires if Mary was a good student. Mary blushes and confesses, yes, reading was my best subject. And Adam tells her, it will be again. We get a short scene over at Plum Creek with Caroline coming in, waving a letter from the Burton School from the Blind with an update about Mary. That's all before we're back at the school where Mary continues to learn more and more. On a walk through the building with Adam, a young girl stops to say hello to Adam and hello to the lady. Mary, in amazement, who hadn't said a word at all, inquires to Adam, how did she know I was here? Adam rolls his eyes. Context clues, Mary. Footsteps and the sounds of your clothes. Mary then takes a moment to listen closer as the girl continues away and inquires, why is there a funny step? Adam, um, that's her crutch. She uses it now after the wagon wreck that she was in that caused her blindness and killed her parents. Mary stands there. I thought I was the only one who suffered. Next time, I'll say hello. We cut to a scene of the classroom. Everyone is reading their braille books. As the camera pans across the screen, it stops the last student in the row who is finishing up their book. And surprise, not surprise, it's Mary. We're back at Walnut Grove. It seems like an eerie, windy day. Nobody's out and about. The feed and grain door is propped open and blowing in the wind. We cut to the mercantile, where Jonathan Garvey and Charles bump into one another. Jonathan Garvey shares the news that he's found a small, part-time, small-paying job for himself and Charles if he wanted it because times are tough because of the issue with the railroad. Finally, we got some word on that. Charles calls this little bit of employment good news, to be followed by more good news when Caroline comes running in with a letter from Mary, written by Mary, with the news that she is ready to return to Walnut Grove and Plum Creek. Back at the Burton Institute, Jenny is her name, the little girl with the crutch who plays piano wonderfully. She finishes her purpose in the story and leaves Adam and Mary alone in the, the parlor lounge. It's a playful little scene between the two of them as they discuss learning how to play piano. Mary then confesses that she does have a fear about returning home because everything's going to be so different. 
and she won't have Adam there to help her out, and how she wished she could stay at the school. However, Adam then informs her that he's not sticking around either. He's heading out west to Winoka to set up a school for the blind out in the Dakota Territory. Shocked and a little bitter, What? This is news to me, says Mary. I'm glad I'm going home. To a different place. To a huge, dark place full of strange voices and faceless bodies. I've never even seen you. Adam then gives consent to Mary to let him touch his face. And Mary, exploring that face, You're so dreamy. Just kidding. But really, he is. Mary smiles, then inquires the color of his eyes and his hair, blue and brown. And then... This is when my heart just drops, and in that good way, Adam inquires to Mary, What do you look like? I've never seen you either. Mary finally realizes the truth, and then proceeds to let Adam touch her face. However, at no time does Mary ask how old Adam is. Charles and Caroline arrive at the Burton School for the Blind and immediately find Mary inside. It's a quick family reunion before Mary then introduces Adam Kendall to the family. You can tell she's excited as she explains everything that she has planned for her parents while they are there. It starts off by showing them to her room, followed by eating the meal that she has prepared. We find ourselves at that lunch. Mary is up serving anyone, and that's when she brings out dessert. Adam mentions how he has a class to teach, excusing himself from the room. And I have to confess, Mary is such a chatterbox in this scene as she goes on about her lopsided cake. Caroline mentions how well Mary seems to be doing and that when they get back home, it's like things would have never changed. In this moment, Mary brings up something that she would like to discuss with her parents. The first thing she wants to mention is thank you. Thank you for sending me to school. And two, I'm following Adam out to Winoka in Dakota Territory to help set up a school for the blind. When it's all set up, I'll then be able to teach. Ma, I'm going to be a teacher, like we always planned. Caroline starts to cry, and it's, it's, it's a really ugly cry too, but it's because she is so proud of her firstborn daughter. Meanwhile, off to the side... Charles is fighting with rapid eye-blinking Charles and demands that they stop being so sentimental so they can go ahead and cut Mary's lopsided cake. After eating the lopsided cake and a little more time has passed, Charles and Caroline head on outside to get their lift back into town. As Caroline climbs into the wagon, she still is a little tearful. Charles tells her it's going to be all right, and Caroline says, I know, I'm still just really excited for Mary. We cut to evening time, and I guess we're in Burton, Iowa. Charles is in the hotel room watching the rain fall outside, and he comes to a decision and decides to wake Caroline. He doesn't even ask her if she's asleep. He just tells her to wake up. He begins with how the railroad has got the Grange cornered, with the bank already closing, the mill might follow right behind, and it's quite possible the mercantile could follow as well. Caroline mentions how they've had hard times before, 
and they got by just fine. Of course, she must have forgotten that last year, they all moved to South Dakota for part of the year. Which is actually, once again, the idea Charles has in his mind. To follow Mary to Winoka. They can still be together as a family. Caroline is now out of bed and comments, "Who We're going to sell the farm? Charles, that's not happening in this market. Caroline continues with how Charles just doesn't like city life. Again, check in with Gold Country from season three. She continues by mentioning that this is just a crazy idea. If we go through with this, we don't have enough brains between the two of ourselves to blow ourselves up. She pauses and then tells Charles, let's do it. And right at that moment, they decide in the middle of a rainy night to head right back out to the Burton School for the Blind and tell Mary. And I just have to wonder, how expensive are these lifts, wagon rides out to the city and the school back and forth? Clearly, they aren't running a meter. However, Charles and Caroline finally arrive back at the Burton School for the Blind and they enter, unannounced, and the man with no name, who Charles signed away Mary to and most likely runs the school, comes out and inquires what is wrong. And Charles says, we're fine, Mr. Nash. Finally, with only 10 minutes left in the episode, Charles and Caroline continue upstairs and tell Mary the good news. And we cut to Charles loading luggage into an open coach on a very rainy day. Charles tells Adam that they'll see one another in a month. And that's when Caroline pulls Charles into the wagon to give Mary and Adam some alone time. Mary reminisces about her first day arriving at the school and how in an odd change of pace, she wasn't ready to learn. And now I have a whole new life. She then touches Adam's face and tells him, I want to hold your face in my heart, Adam Kendall. And I'll second that, Mary Ingalls. Adam leans in and gives Mary a kiss and then whispers to her, what we've finally been waiting to hear, I'll be waving as you drive away. Mary gets into the wagon with her parents, and as it pulls away, Mary turns around and starts to wave, as is Adam standing there in front of the school, with the promise of a new day in Winoka in 30 days. We find ourselves back at Walnut Grove, and it's just basically deserted. We then move into the mercantile. Mr. Olson steps out and greets Charles and Mary as they enter. Charles has come to tell Mr. Olson, to no surprise, that he and his family will be leaving in about a week. And he's busy trying to sell his cows and calves. Mr. Olson shows Charles the state of his storage room. He's selling virtually everything to a wholesaler at a loss. And this is when the bell at the front door rings and Mrs. Sims enters. And this is the first time teacher and student have been reunited. We've come to find out that even the school is closed because Mrs. Sims and Adam are moving away because just like everyone else, Adam can't make a living out here. She'll be leaving tomorrow morning before church. Mrs. Sims has come in to find Mary 
And taking Mary's hands, Mrs. Sims gives her a cameo brooch and tells her, this was a gift from my first teacher and I want you to have it. Mrs. Sims then looks up and not necessarily at the camera, but more or less, of course, Charles and Mr. Olson in the room. I'm going to miss you. I'm going to miss all of you. Mary pulls Mrs. Sims in for one hug. Without a word, Mrs. Sims turns around and leaves the mercantile. It's late night at Plum Creek. Charles is playing with Grace. Mary is making her way down from the loft, getting ready to write a letter to Adam. Observing what is in her sister's hands, Laura states, You're going to write a letter with that? Why not just write it out with your hands? It would be a lot quicker. Mary responds, well, then someone would have to read it to him. Laura, so? Caroline interjects and reminds Laura that it just might be a private letter. Mary relays how sad it was to see Mrs. Sims go and then inquires if they would be heading to church tomorrow. It was only kind of half planned on that. However, Mary does insist on going because it might be the last chance to say goodbye. And it is Sunday morning and Reverend Alden is coming in and he actually seems surprised to see actually anyone from the congregation there. And standing behind the podium, uh, Reverend Alden is not keeping it together and confesses how sad it is to see everyone gone. But more, he's angry and confused. What is the purpose of all of this? Why is it a man of greed is allowed to drive my flock away? Reverend Alden then reminds us that he had a midnight conversation with someone and the someone had a child who was losing their eyesight. Yes, that's how he puts it. Way to be discreet, Reverend Alden. However, the point of the midnight conversation was to understand a special purpose. And that has now been answered. Mary does have a purpose. She's paying it forward. How she's becoming a teacher for the blind out in Winoka. Reverend Alden continues how earlier Mary had made a request to lead a prayer on the last day that we're all together. Mary, with a little help from Charles and Reverend Alden, lead her up behind the podium and she puts down her Braille Bible and opens it. Before she gives the blessing, she tells everyone that she spent four years in this room. Laughter, joy, sometimes sadness, and we'll be together again when God opens the doors and says, welcome to my house. She then begins to read Psalms 15, concluding by saying, God go with you all. And well, in a odd choice, but totally valid one too, the season ends with a freeze frame on Mary. Little House on the Prairie's first ever real season finale cliffhanger. There's no real world, Adam Kendall. Mary, real Mary, went away to school in 1881 to attend the Vinton College for the Blind and later renamed the Iowa Educational Services for the Blind and Visually Impaired. Back in May 2021, I might have shared this, but I had the experience of heading to DeSmit, South Dakota, and visit the Laura Ingalls Wilder 
historical homes and museum. Oh, and gift shop. And what I'm going to share with you is from the information displays at the museum. This one entitled, What Was College Like for Mary Ingalls? It reads, Schoolwork was very important to Mary, and records show she excelled during her time at the Vinton School. She would have taken classes in everything from literature, geometry, zoology, or economics, as well as several musical classes. In addition, Mary took classes in sewing, beadwork, broom making, and making fly nets for horses. And here's my favorite part. It also wouldn't surprise many readers to learn that Mary received a 100 in deportment or good behavior, the highest out of anyone in her class, exclamation mark. Even real life Mary was a nerd. It also mentions on this display that in school, Mary learned to read raised print text as well as New York Point, a dot code similar to Braille. This one was located inside the museum itself. There is a second reader that's in display inside one of the historical homes. It was also the last home that real-life Charles Ingalls built. Upon returning from school, this is where Mary spent the rest of her life. Well, almost all of it. She passed away in Keystone, South Dakota. The second reader shares a lot of the same information. However, it does include this lovely little piece where it says, she completed a seven-year course in eight years. Again, it states Mary returned to DeSmit and lived in the house on 3rd Street with her parents until Charles passed away in 1902. Her and Caroline would continue to live together, supplementing their income with a little Airbnb until Caroline passed away in 1924 and continued to live in the house four more years with her sister Grace and her husband, passing away in 1928. So although real-life Mary Ingalls did receive her education, she chose to simply continue living a quiet life. So quite the opposite that we have seen from TV Mary. So anything from here on out involving Mary Ingalls in the series, it's just going to be fresh. And with that, let's finally get to reviewing and rating this episode. I love how Mary is kind of a trendsetter here. When greeted by her parents to bring her back to Walnut Grove, she declines and says, I've got a whole new world to go out there and see. And instead of Charles and Caroline returning to Walnut Grove, they're inspired and decide to leave the area as well. Of course, to be closer with Mary, since they finally got her back. This whole episode is really Mary coming out of her dark place. She had her self-pity in the beginning, questioning what was the purpose for any of this, and eventually learning that love conquers all. Even if that love is between a teacher and a student and a very noticeable age gap, but things were different on the prairie. I don't know if we can use that as an excuse, however. And truthfully, I don't think it has anything to do with age. When Mary was 14 and engaged to John Jr., she was told she had to wait two years by Charles. And John Jr. is maybe a year, maybe two, older than Mary. However, when Mary turns 15 and finds a possible second beau, 
who's as tall as Charles and definitely a little more filled out than John Jr., Charles doesn't even hesitate to let his daughter have this relationship. But again, we see Mary having these relationships other than just friends, family. She does have a love relationship, which going back to last episode, that's what Seth Barton was supposed to be, a potential beau. And after becoming blind, Mary rejecting love from everyone. And here we get the opposite. We see Mary embracing love. And perhaps if she wasn't so busy hating on herself in the beginning of the episode, she might have done the polite thing to Adam and ask him about himself and maybe find out sooner rather than later that her teacher was also blind, giving her more inspiration that she was able to do things for herself. And the long takes in this episode, as I've already mentioned, are totally, absolutely warranted. Would we have the same effect with a bunch of quick edits of Mary walking around her room? No, it would just be too disjointing. Also, like the previous episode, and I'm talking about A Most Precious Gift and not I'll Be Waving As You Drive Away, part one, uh, had quite a bit of time passing in them. We had most of a pregnancy in A Most Precious Gift, and here we know we have a passing of at least three months because that's the school's required time of isolation, plus whatever extra time passes as Mary learns to rewrite and eventually send a letter to her family. So it kind of seems as though things aren't as dire in regards to the railroad and the Grange, because everyone seems to be getting by just fine in Walnut Grove up until Mary returns. So our Grange Railroad storyline eventually does get an ending here, as, as well as Seth Barton's inclusion. And one more thing I would like to include, for the last time in season four anyway, is this week's Little House moment, which goes to Mary and Adam Kendall as Mary explores her first meal at Burton School for the Blind. This is one of those things actually that was really interesting was the development about Mary using her fingers to eat instead of using utensils. And that makes sense. And again, in regards to the previous episode, this is absolutely one of those situations that could have been explored in part one instead of having Seth Barton. How did Mary eat? How did she get around the house? Did she leave the house? Well, of course, she left the house for the outhouse. But we were never given any of that information. So here, Adam calling her out because he's well aware of what Mary is going through. And not as a teacher, but also as somebody who lived through that experience. And I always love seeing a rebellious Mary. And Adam Kendall, again, kind of dreamy, demonstrates one of the best traits a teacher can have. Patience. Followed that up with a little sense of humor. And again, up until this point in the episode, we weren't given any sort of clues that Adam Kendall was also blind. So as he makes his exit here, feeling for the door, I don't know for anyone else, but for me, it just makes me reassured that Mary was going to be in good hands. And with that, let's finally get to rating this episode. I will confess, at first, I was thinking how 
I'll be waving as you drive away, part one and part two, would have been great if it was that long-run episode time. But giving pause. Once we saw Mary placed in the wagon and having it pull away from Plum Creek, I immediately wanted to know what happened next. And of course, with its original airing, everyone did. So they came back the following week. And talk about a ratings boost. Michael Landon knew what he was doing. So to actually have had these two as a long-running episode, I don't think it would have been as much of an event as it actually ended up being. If we compare it to season three's Gold Country, how that was a long-running episode, we saw the Ingalls leave, they find gold, they have an experience while they're out there, and they eventually head back to Walnut Grove. It's over and done with. We know they're heading back home. But here we start with an episode that has a rather traumatic event, followed by the immediate aftermath of it, concluding, of course, with our family deciding that it's time for them to leave Walnut Grove. So season four's finale, with it being a two-parter, was definitely a one-two punch. Also, a quick shout out to Matthew Jones on Instagram for bringing it to my attention that season four could have actually been the final season for Little House on the Prairie. And upon revisiting my copy of Michael Landon, The Career and Artistry of a Television Genius by David R. Greenland, one, the development of Adam Kendall as a character was in a way to help move the story forward. Laura is at home with her parents throughout most of the book series, as is Mary which Michael Landon was aware of, and to quote him, he stated shortly after the production of The Fourth Year, the girls on the show are growing up, and the concept wouldn't work having them remain at home when they're getting older. He compares, contrasts this with his experience of being on Bonanza, where the men in their 30s could essentially still be living with their pa, because they're out on the frontier living. But here, when you have a family that have children that eventually turn into adolescents, things got to move forward a little bit. And as it continues to state in this book, Michael Landon disclosed that if the series was granted a fifth season, the Ingalls family would sell their farm and move to a larger town where Charles and Caroline would manage a boarding house. So the freeze frame at the end of the episode is perfect. We leave the Ingalls at this moment in time for the most part, assured that everything is going to be okay. Oh, and of course, it was nice to actually hear the name of the episode spoken. And yes, it was definitely more situated between Mary and Adam as opposed to Laura and Mary. I guess I would have to say, and I really hate being nitpicky about this, the one thing I absolutely could not stand about this episode was having no idea who Mr. Nash is until the end of the episode. You know, the man who has an office that invites Charles in to sign some paperwork, whom Charles confesses that the last few weeks have been really challenging, who happens to run the school that Mary will be attending and being isolated away from her family for three months. Why was he not given at least a little bit more importance at the beginning of the episode? He's running the school. He's entrusted with Mary. 
We should know a little bit about Mr. Nash. But no. Halfway through the episode, he's referred to as Sir, and again, finally, Mr. Nash at the end when Charles and Caroline come running unannounced into the building. Oh, and I guess I, I it does seem a little weird that even though the railroad is trying to dismantle the Grange, people in Walnut Grove get by for at least another three months. But again, all those things are really petty, and that's why we are going to give this episode, I'll Be Waving As You Drive Away, Part 2, a 4.75 bonnet rating. And with that, we can finally get to tabulating Season 4's final bonnet rating. And I've gotten so much better with these Google Sheets. Season 4's average is a 4.19. And of course, we round it up to the quarter. So Season 4 delivers a 4.25 bonnet rating. And I will confess, Season 4 was a bit of a slow burner. The first half of this season was... Mm, okay. Aside from some highlights like Times of Change and My Ellen, things in season four didn't really pick up until The Fighter. But unfortunately, we did have a number of mm, not as great episodes with The Aftermath, Be My Friend, The High Cost of Being Right, and The Creeper of Walnut Grove. But once we get to Here Comes the Bride, Season 4 seems to really take off. I mean, what did we get in Season 4? Well, for starters, we got this huge story arc from Miss Beetle. Other than seeing her suck face that one time way back in Four Eyes, Miss Beetle has primarily just been a teacher. Again, not bad. But here, she eventually gets more things in her life. She gets married. She gets a family. She has her own child. And then she moves away. We also got our replacement family for the Snyder's Edwards clans in the Garveys. And although Jonathan Garvey is no Mr. Edwards and Andy Garvey, eh, he's okay. Alice Garvey, she can stick around for a while. I love her no-nonsense attitude, straight to the point. Knows how to call out her friends and her husband, Alice Garvey was a nice addition for season four. Plus, we got two baby Graces. Albeit, we only needed the one. We got plenty of callback to previous seasons. Baby Charles Frederick Ingalls, Dr. Burke, John Jr. We got introduced to new characters like Kezia Horn, as well as Joe Kagan, Adam Sims, and to a lesser degree, Lucas Sims. We also see a point where Nellie and Laura are both growing up after receiving their first kiss. And of course, we got our origin story of Charles and Caroline meeting for the first time. So season four was a rather eventful season, despite its kind of lower rating. But to put it in comparison with our previous seasons, Season 3 having a 4.5 bonnet rating, Season 2 a 4 point rating, and Season 1 4.25. Which is leaving me a little anxious for Season 5. Are we going to get a rebrand? A reboot? 
a revisioning imagination? Who knows? But whatever it is, I'm looking forward to it. And as always, at the end of a season, it's time to hand out some awards. Starting off with favorite new slash old word. I have to confess, season four in the beginning wasn't giving me much in the way of, of course, old-timey words. We got uppity at one point, although I was already aware of flogging uh, words such as deportment. I was introduced to the word raiments. And of course, how could we forget peccadillos? And while all of them are really strong contenders, season four's best new word slash old word goes to vapors, which I am already using in everyday conversation. Our next award is to recognize the best use of food in season four. Don't worry, it doesn't go to Carrie for chucking that glass of milk, nor is it all the different varieties of food that Timothy Farrell, aka the Creeper of Walnut Grove, stole. The winner of season four's best use of food goes to red delicious apples Laura used to stuff her shirt. I totally was caught off guard with that scene and I absolutely appreciated it. What are those small hidden gems in this series? Although season four might be considered a slow burning season, there is quite a bit of action throughout. We get a pack of wild dogs trying to dig themselves inside the barn to get at Mary, Laura, and Andy Garvey. There was that whole giant shootout when those bounty hunters came to town looking for Frank and Jesse James. Charles's boxing match with Joe Kegging chasing after a runaway hot air balloon. Harriet firing a shotgun. The numerous fires that happened. But all of those are little pale in comparison to season four's best action scene. And it goes to Willie, who knows exactly what he's doing when he starts a fight with a frontal wedgie. From there, fabric goes flying, and the next thing we know, Willie is left in his pink onesie. And that velvety, uppity church outfit is gone. We've seen Willie create mischief before, usually under the guidance of his sister Nellie. However, here, Willie steps out of the shadow and is determined to never have to wear that outfit ever again. And again, plan totally succeeded. We move on to our uh, cringiest moment award. And while the return of Charles's stand-up routine does make your eyes roll, it's not cringy enough. Nor is it those two kids who are sneaking a peek at the Ingalls girls and Ellen Taylor as they swim, eventually leading to death. Season four's cringiest moment is to be shared between two moments. First moment goes to Charles as he proceeds to tell Harriet about Laura being an underage, unwed mother. He just keeps it going and he makes her believe it. And although, yes, it is funny, and we never know if she does eventually find out the truth. Laura is still possibly 13 in this episode. Cringiest moment number two, that honeymoon night between newlyweds 
Lucas Sims, and Nellie Olson, and how they are mere moments before consummating their marriage until Harriet and Mr. Olson show up with that shotgun. I will confess, up until that point, yeah, it was a little awkward. Because we all know Lucas Sims is definitely somewhere in his late 20s. Season 4 also gave us some rather interesting couples. Although Andy and Laura are new BFFs, they are not a great couple, it also doesn't go to Mary and her relationship with her new BFF, Miss Rachel Peel. It doesn't even go to the fraternal love between young Charles and his brother Peter, although that one was really a close contender. Season 4's best couple goes to our Justice of the Peace, Cyrus Farnham, and his wife, Philomena. Those two are the cherry on top of a fantastic episode that we call Here Comes the Bride. Philomena, half asleep, tossing rice, Justice of the Peace, Cyrus Farnham, delivering some of the best one-liners in the series ever. Your appearance in the Prairie Verse was brief, but it will be forever remembered. Moving on, we finally get to our WTF moment. Things that just completely made my mouth drop. And while Laura uh, essentially being kidnapped and stored away in a root cellar is shocking, it's not a WTF moment, nor was it the Garvey barn with all those crops inside going up in flames, or any of the multiple times young Charles got flogged. Season 4's WTF moment goes to young Peter Lundstrom for smashing all those windows at the mercantile. I knew the kid was angry and upset, but wow, that just completely caught me off guard as he picked up that chair and smashed those windows in. And we find out really how desperate he was for his father's attention. We finally get to the best dress category, which once again, this is just one that's kind of a challenge and might be discontinued for season five, but we're going to move directly into best dressed male. And it's going to go to Joe Kagan, mostly because he has the most variety of costumes, outfits in an episode from his fancy robe with his name on it to his boxing attire to his farm gear. I don't think many other um, male characters have that many costume changes in a single episode. So congratulations, Joe. While best dressed female goes to Mary and all of her fancy raiments. She got to wear her mother's fancy dress while in Chicago, plus another new one during the inheritance, changing up her hair when she needed to not be identified as a student anymore, as well as bringing out her glasses once again. Again, those are more function over fashion, but it still counts. Plus, she always knows how to take it back to basics when she was matron of the house during the Wolves episode. And lastly, we conclude with our MVC, Most Valuable Character. First award, shout out, goes to character in a single episode, aka special guest stars, and as much as I really enjoyed Eloise Taylor's downward spiral because of grief, 
or Chris Nelson's appearance as the handyman. Blushing. Season four's MVP special guest star goes to, it should go with really without saying, Miss Rachel Peel. This character was played amazingly. Again, one of those people you just love to hate, even though in the end she does have a turnaround. Miss Rachel Peel, again, stole every scene she was in. Even at the end of the episode, when Mary came in to tell her off, Miss Rachel Peel, you may have been in only one episode, and although you were gone, you will never be forgotten. Following that, we have our supporting cast member. Again, anyone who's in more than one episode, but technically not in all of the episodes. It was exciting to see, once again, a Doc Baker-centric episode, as well as Miss Beetle having an episode, or kind of two, focused on her. And Jonathan Garvey will never be a Mr. Edwards, so there's no need to even put him into consideration. Although Alice Garvey, hmm, but no, there's someone else. And as much as I do love Mr. Olsen, season four's best supporting character finally goes to Harriet Olsen. This season gave us shotgun Harriet, drunk Harriet, Harriet being tackled by a group of four kids, two of them her own, delivering shade, as well as receiving shade. Harriet Olsen, this was your season. And lastly, we come to main cast. And well, it should really go without saying, best main character, once again, goes to Mary. Yeah, looking back on the season, we did get a lot of Mary-centric episodes. And finally, looking at some spoilers, background, fun fact information online, part of that was because of some corrective dental surgery braces, more or less braces on Melissa Gilbert. They make a very quick appearance in the My Ellen episode. And although Melissa Gilbert did have braces during this time. She wasn't the only one. Going back into season three, you can find many instances with Allison Argren and her braces. But aside from that, Mary really did go through a lot this season. Being dumped by her gay fiance while in Chicago, accusing her mom of having an extramarital affair with the handyman, making sure her sisters and Andy Garvey didn't get murdered by a pack of wild dogs, held hostage by Jesse and Frank James. Heck, even being held hostage by Cass McRae and his hot air balloon. Having a smackdown with Nellie Olson and taking on the likes of Miss Rachel Peel. And finally, of course the obvious, going blind. Season four is definitely the there's something about Mary season. And as always, Those are my thoughts and feelings about this episode and this season. And I wouldn't mind hearing any thoughts or feelings you have about this episode, season, or any previous episode or season from Plum Creek with love at Gmail or Instagram. With the closing of the season also comes the completion of the season four playlist on Spotify. And as always, at the end of each season, we will be taking a two-week break before we come back 
and start Season 5. It's only a coincidence that date will be December 5th. So if you haven't already done so, hit that like, subscribe, follow button on, on the platform you might be listening to. That way, when the new episode drops, you'll be the first to know, as well as those of you who are following on Instagram. So get yourself some time to get all caught up on the podcast. Maybe watch an episode or two on whatever streaming platform you have, or even finding it on YouTube. As always, if you've been enjoying from Plum Creek with love, please feel free to leave a rating or a review on your platform of choice to help get the word out on this podcast. And to all my listeners, longtime ones, as well as the new ones, as always, thank you so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. And with that, we come to the end of another episode and season of From Plum Creek with Love, a Little House on the Prairie podcast. I'm your host, John Hernandez, and until next time...